For our lesson of the day, we will be in James chapter 2. I will begin reading in verse 13. Here again, the Word of God. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brother? And if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And scripture, the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would speak now that the power of your gospel might be unleashed in our lives to transform us, to make us a working, obedient, faithful people. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said in the announcements this morning, it is a... um, it is interesting in God's providence that uh, it's Reformation Sunday and uh, we find ourselves here in uh, the book of James and specifically in this passage, James chapter 2, which was undoubtedly the most controversial passage during the Reformation. What's the Reformation all about? In the 16th century, uh, Martin Luther rediscovered the great and glorious gospel truth of justification by faith alone, that God declares us righteous and forgives our sins by faith. When we trust in Christ, we are united to Christ. And so all that is Christ, His status, His righteousness, His life, it all becomes ours. When Luther made this discovery, it was amazingly freeing. It was amazingly liberating. It meant people who had been chained to guilt and fear by the church's corrupted teaching were now set free. It unleashed the gospel to transform lives and transform civilization in new ways. But there was a problem with Luther's formulation of justification by faith alone. It seems to contradict James who says Abraham was justified by works. Indeed, James says a man is not justified by faith alone. He took Luther's formula and negated it. And so there's this tension between Luther and James. Could the tension be relieved in any kind of way? 
Well, in 1519, Luther was at a uh, debate uh, at Leipzig uh, to defend his view of the gospel, his doctrine of justification by faith alone. And his Roman Catholic opponent in that debate, Johann Eck, uh, continually cited James 2.17 against Luther's position. And Luther at that point really didn't have an answer. He had studied Paul very carefully, but he had not uh, studied James in the same way and had not yet figured out how to put them together. And so in 1521, when Luther was sequestered away in the Wartburg Castle, translating the New Testament into German, he wrote a preface to that translation of the New Testament and he gave his opinion of James in these words. He says, John's Gospel and his first epistle... Paul's epistle, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and Peter's first epistle, are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary for you to know, even if you were to never see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, James' epistle is really a right strawy epistle compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Luther said James was a right strawy epistle, an epistle of straw, especially compared to these others. Now, I've already shown you there is gospel in James. We, we've seen that as we've moved through this letter. But Luther hadn't seen that yet. In fact, on another occasion, he said, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the fire. <laughs> I think he meant the book, not the person. But uh, he, he was frustrated with James. He could not figure out how to put these things together. Now, Luther did not take James out of the canon altogether. Sometimes people say that, that he just he cut it out of the canon altogether. Luther did not do that. He knew that that was not his decision to make. He respected the canon of Scripture as already established. He did move James to the back, but he didn't take it out altogether. And later, sometimes this is overlooked, later he did recant of his negative view of James. He realized that if James has apostolic authority, he needs to submit himself to James. And he even preached from the book on several occasions, noting its value. Uh, but you could say the damage had been done. Now, later reformers did not share Luther's aversion to James. Uh, for example, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin embraced James. They praised James. They made use of James. They did not uh, face the, the same struggle to reconcile James with the rest of the New Testament that Luther sensed for them. It was much easier to fit James into the overarching message uh, of the New Testament. This is Zwingli, just to give you an example of this. It says, whereas Paul wrote against uh, works men, that is, men who were trying to base their salvation on their works, James, on the other hand, opposes boasters of faith pseudo-Christians who have received the gospel but do not live according to it. Uh, Zwingli says, Therefore, like Christ Himself, and like Paul, and like James, we warn people that they must show forth their faith by their acts if they have faith. Hence, we preach the law as well as grace, for from the law the faithful and elect learn the will of God. Zwingli says it's from books like James and, of course, also Paul and the teaching of Christ that we learn what God wants us to do, how to express our faith in acts of obedience. And Zwingli puts James right alongside Paul and even the teaching of Christ as inspired by God, as authoritative for the church. That's Zwingli's view. Calvin is very similar. Uh, the other reformers seem to follow suit, embracing James and incorporating his teaching into their theology. Nevertheless, James continues to suffer 
under Luther's criticisms, or at least his lack of comfort with James. James continues to be treated sort of like the crazy uncle of the New Testament authors. You can see his family resemblance to the others, but you still aren't quite sure how he fits in with everyone else. And so the book of James gets neglected. But if we are patient and careful students of James' book, if we work through his letter carefully, if we work through chapter 2 carefully, we can see how James really isn't out of step at all with the rest of Scripture. And actually harmonizing James 2 with the rest of the New Testament, including Paul, is really not nearly as difficult as it might seem at first. Luther certainly deserves credit for rediscovering the doctrine of justification by faith and its depth and its richness. Again, he freed the church from an oppressive legalism. Luther allowed the church to breathe in the free air of God's grace once again. But you know, legalism is not the only way we can go wrong. Uh, The church fathers had an expression, Christ was crucified between two thieves. Metaphorically, legalism on the one hand, but lawlessness or license on the other. Legalism is one way to get it wrong, but lawlessness is another. What's become known as antinomianism, against the law. It's the view that because God is gracious to us, because God forgives us, because salvation is by faith alone, how we live does not matter. Salvation is by faith, not by works. And so works don't make a difference. Works can't earn your eternal standing. And so therefore, works don't matter. But that is an error. And it is is indeed the very error that James is challenging. James shows us that how we live indeed does matter. In fact, your eternal destiny depends upon how you live. That's James' assertion. But James is not alone in that. In fact, if I had time, I could show you virtually every single book of the New Testament explicitly teaches that same truth. That how we live determines our eternal destiny. Jesus clearly taught this. We read it this morning in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says that His disciples will be known by their fruits, even as the false teachers are known by their fruits. Faithful people will produce good fruit. Unfaithful people, bad fruit. By their fruits, you will know them. Those fruits are the fruits of faith. He goes on to say, not everyone who cries out, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why will they be barred from the kingdom of heaven? Because they practice lawlessness. Lawlessness characterizes their lives. They cry out to Jesus. They talk a good game. But they don't back it up with a life of obedience. And they'll be excluded. Matthew chapter 25 in a passage that is very similar to James chapter 2. Uh, in Matthew 25, we find Jesus teaching about the great white throne judgment. A judgment that will take place at the last day where Jesus will judge everyone according to their works. He will justify us or condemn us according to our works. And in that great scene, He separates the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are picked out as those who have done good works, specifically works of mercy. Now those works are not meritorious. They don't earn salvation. In fact, Jesus in that very context calls the eternal glory they're entering into, their final salvation, an inheritance, not a wage. So it's a gift. But who is the gift given to? It's given to those who have been obedient. Those who have been faithful. That passage makes it clear. There's no salvation without obedience. The Apostle Paul thought the same truth. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Chapter later, 1 Corinthians 7, 19, he says, what counts is keeping the commandments of God. That's what really matters most. He says in Galatians, what counts is faith working through love. Romans chapter 2, we read a little piece of it this morning, but Paul goes on to say there, looking ahead to the final judgment, to the last day, he says, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Before Paul in Romans talks about justification by faith, he says it is the doers of the law who will be justified at the last day. And that's not hypothetical. But neither does it require some kind of perfection in law of doing. Rather, what he means by doing the law is spelled out in the rest of the letter where we find that God has given us His Spirit. And the Spirit does what the flesh could not, producing obedience, producing righteousness in our lives. Not perfection, not the perfection of our lives, but the direction of our lives. The Spirit impels us to this kind of obedience. And it is the doers of the law, those who have manifested this kind of Spirit-empowered obedience, who will be justified at the last day. Hebrews chapter 12, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Indeed, when you take the New Testament as a whole, you find that there is a vast array of conditions we must meet in order to inherit eternal life. Conditions such as faith, repentance, obedience, perseverance, love, holiness, good works, in a variety of different ways, all of these are required of us if we are to be saved at the last day. People who are saved show it by living different lives, lives that are transformed by the grace of God. God's grace not only forgives, God's grace renews. God's grace not only forgives, God's grace makes us holy. God's grace transforms. And the whole Reformed tradition has taught this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what does God require of us that we may escape His wrath and curse due to us for sin? And the answer God requires of us, faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, and the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of His redemption. Faith, repentance, use of the outward means, life in the church, essentially. That's what the Westminster Catechism teaches. These are the things necessary to escape God's wrath and curse. Larger Catechism 22 goes on at even greater length. The larger Catechism teaches God's grace is manifest to us in giving us as sinners a mediator and life and salvation in Him and also in giving us the Holy Spirit to work in us faith with all other saving graces and to enable us to perform a holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of our faith and as the way in which He has appointed us to salvation. The larger catechism teaches walking in good works by the power of the Holy Spirit is the way to final salvation. You just can't break that link between how we live and our eternal destiny. Francis Turretin may not be a household name, but he was perhaps the greatest systematizer of Reformed theology after John Calvin, lived in Geneva, so a successor of uh, of Calvin to the ministry in Geneva. Uh, In the 17th century, he, he produced a... Uh, a a wonderful systematic uh, summation of reformational theology. And this is what he says about the necessity of good works. He says, although works may be said to contribute nothing to the acquisition of salvation, 
still they should be considered necessary to obtaining it so that no one will be saved without them. We're not saved by our works, but we're not saved without them either, Turretin is saying. And then he spells out how this works. He says good works are related to salvation as a means to an end, as a way to the goal, as sowing is to reaping, as the first fruits is to the fullness of harvest, as laboring is to reward, as the contest is to the crown. Says everyone sees that there is an indispensable necessity of good works for obtaining glory. It cannot be reached without them. Church is just saying, you're going to reap what you sow, as Paul says in Galatians 6. And the only way to reap the harvest of eternal life is to live a life of obedience in the here and now. Turretin says good works are the means and way for possessing salvation. If we are walking on this journey to eternal salvation, we must be walking in the pathway of good work. And so he says at the last day, at the final judgment, life is rendered to good works. Not in any kind of meritorious way, but simply as the way, the only way to enter into eternal life as proof of our faith as evidences of God's grace in our life. See, that's not legalism. That's not going back to Roman Catholicism. That is pure Reformed theology and it's, re it's Reformational theology because it's biblical theology. So there's your history lesson, Reformation Sunday. There's your history lesson. You see, this is what the Reformers taught. This is what the Reformation taught. But let's go back to James. Let's see what James teaches. James teaches the exact same thing. James teaches faith without works does not profit, verse 13. It cannot save, verse 14. It is dead, verses 17, 19, and 26. It is demonic, verse 19. It does not justify, verse 24. Faith, the only kind of faith that counts with God, produces good works. Faith is a living, active, dynamic force in our lives that brings transformation and renewal. Faith is as faith does. The test of your faith is seen in the way you live your life. And at the last day, James is indicating to us, God will judge us according to works because those works are the manifestation of our faith, the visible evidence of our faith. And those and only those who have good works then will be vindicated at the last day. Our actions must match our words. If you brag to me about this great new diet you're on with a mouthful of donuts, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You're talking about the diet, but that it doesn't look like it. You're not manifesting that. Okay. If you say, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior, but you disregard everything He has to say in His Word, you don't seek to live according to it, I don't believe you. I don't believe your profession. If you say you have faith, if you profess faith, you have to back it up with action. It's really quite easy, especially here in the Bible Belt South, it's really quite easy to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Christ. It's much harder, no matter where you live, it's much harder to actually live as a Christian, to be His faithful follower and disciple. That's what James is dealing with. James is condemning a word-deed mismatch. And in this passage, he illustrates the link between faith and works in four ways. So the first illustration James gives us is this in verses 15 and 16. If you come to church and a brother or sister is leaving church to go home, they're departing from the church, but their pantry is empty and their closet is empty, and you say, go in peace. 
be warmed and filled, but you do not provide for their needs according to your ability to do so. Your faith, James says, is in vain. Such a faith does not profit. That's really interesting. Go in peace. Okay, with the, what the person says to the to the hungry and naked person, go in peace. That's a liturgical expression. That's part of the liturgy. It's the peace ritual that has been a formal part of the liturgy of God's people from the very beginning. So you can have the correct liturgical ritual, the correct liturgical form here. This is what's being said at the end of the service. Go in peace. It's liturgically correct. They've got the proper liturgical form. Their service ends with this word of peace. It's a word of peace that implies God has made peace with us through the cross of His Son. It implies we're at peace with one another. It points to the restoration of all things as the prophets foretold, as the prophets promised. The shalom of God breaking into His creation. This expression of peace is even connected with the Lord's Supper, which is our peace offering. But here the words go in peace are empty. Here the words go in peace are uttered in vain because the one expressing peace does not put it into practice helping those in need. He's got the right liturgy, but the wrong lifestyle. See, the liturgy, a faithful liturgy, liturgy without works is dead. Saying go in peace without practicing peace is dead. We can't wish one another peace without actually practicing peace. Sentimentalism is not enough. There has to be action. Liturgical correctness is not enough. There has to be action. Indeed, James goes even further. Liturgical correctness is not enough. Creedal correctness is not enough either. This is really his second illustration in verse 19. He says, you believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That confession, God is one, of course, goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's what's known as the Shema. And again, it was part of Israel's liturgy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, Moses says. Then he goes on, and so love Him with all your heart, soul, and strength. The Shema leads into the great commandment to love God. God is one, that's the proper creedal formula. That's the cornerstone of everything we believe. That God is one. There is this one God. He's utterly unique. This is the cornerstone confession of God's people. Israelites would recite this, this Shema, every time they gathered in the synagogue and the temple. It even made its way into the Nicene Creed of the church. I believe in one God. The Father Almighty. And so on. This is how we confess our faith, using these words, this form of words, this expression. But again, James shows us using the right liturgical and creedal forms without good works does us no good. The confession God is one is in vain. It's empty if there aren't works to go with it. Indeed, James says it is demonic. We have to express our faith as in an, an obedient way of life or it does us no good. We can't just confess the faith. We have to practice it. We can't just speak the faith. We have to act it out. Otherwise, James says, our faith is no better than the demons. You know, there are no atheists in hell. Demons have got correct theology. Jonathan Edwards made the point that uh, demons have been trained in the best divinity school in the universe. 
They knew firsthand the truth about God. Hell is full of good theology. The demons know God is one and they shudder at that truth. Devils can recite the Shema. Devils can recite the Nicene Creed. But sound doctrine is not enough. We can't just congratulate ourselves on having orthodox beliefs. Now, when we confess God as one, I don't think we necessarily have to shudder at that. I mean, we certainly fear this one God. But really, we can rejoice that God is one. We can rejoice in who this God is. But James' point is this. The truth we confess has to shape how we live. If you don't act on it, it's not real. Believing in life jackets does not save a drowning man. He's got to actually put that life jacket on. He's got to do something. The kind of faith that saves is a faith that acts. You can't just say God is one. You can't just say you believe in Jesus. You back it up. You prove it. You demonstrate it by doing what God commands, what Jesus has called us to do. Now James also deals very briefly with the person who thinks they can have good works without orthodox faith in verse 18. So the opposite problem. He just throws this in very, very briefly. So someone will say, you have faith, but I have works. In other words, you have orthodoxy, you have correct beliefs. I have orthopraxy, I have correct action. You've got faith without deeds, I have deeds without faith. But James makes it clear, any kind of separation between faith and works just doesn't wash with him. Faith and works are always linked. Good works, even those works that have an appearance of being good, if they're not connected to faith, motivated by faith, rooted in faith in God and His grace, faith in God's Word, don't have value before God. That's a whole separate topic to talk about that I'm not going to go into. It's interesting to me that James throws this in and he doesn't develop it, but it is there. The kind of works that avail before God, that count with God, are works that spring from faith, that grow organically out of our faith. James is saying faith has to be there. Orthodox belief and convictions do matter. But it cannot be the kind of faith that just stays in our heads, that doesn't alter and shape how we live. And so again, James is right back to this point. Faith must be made visible in our way of life. He says, I will show you my, my faith by what I do. Good works are faith in action. James says in verse 20, it is foolish to think you can have faith without works. It's folly to think you can break that link between faith and life. Faith can be seen. Faith goes public in our actions. Faith is demonstrated. There is fruit. There is evidence of our faith in how we live. And so James moves on to his third and fourth illustrations, the patriarch and the prostitute, Abraham and Rahab. It's an unlikely pair, certainly, but it really makes sense when you see what James is doing here, why James has taken these two examples as his exhibits, as his models of what saving faith really looks like, a working faith. Abraham is not hard to understand why James would have chosen Abraham. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And so any Jewish theological argument that ends with Abraham, with proving Abraham is on your side, means you've won. Abraham is always the trump card because he's not just any believer. He's the prototypical believer. He's the prototype of what a believer should be. The typological believer. And so James gives us an overview of key events from Abraham's life. 
He starts in Genesis 15. God promised Abraham a seed. A son. God promised Abraham a seed. And Abraham believed God and he was counted righteous. That is to say, he was justified. He's justified by faith in the promised seed. That's actually Luther's doctrine. We're justified by faith in Christ. That's where Abraham starts. Genesis 15. But then later, God commands him to offer that seed as a sacrifice. Genesis 22. God says, take your son Isaac up on the mountain, a three-day journey to, to Moriah, and sacrifice him there. And so the question is, will Abraham continue to trust God? Well, if he does, the proof will be seen in his obedience. Now we know, if not from Genesis, certainly from Hebrews 11, that Abraham trusted that if he sacrificed Isaac, the promised seed... If he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. Abraham trusted God's promise, even when it seemed God's promise would not and could not be kept. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. He continued to serve God, to obey God, even when it looked like God's promises could not possibly come true. But in this way, his obedience, James tells us, his obedience fulfilled that earlier declaration of righteousness. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that is fulfilled. That's from Genesis 15. Now that is fulfilled in Genesis 22. Back in Genesis 15, God said, Abraham is righteous. Now in Genesis 22, Abraham proves. He proves God's declaration is right. By acting out in righteousness. Abraham proved his faith by obeying when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar according to God's command. And so Abraham shows us, if you believe, then you will obey. Abraham's life proves James' point. Faith without deeds is useless. Because, as he says, Abraham's faith was active in his works. His faith was completed by his works. His faith was brought to maturity as he lived out disobedience. Because his works demonstrated his faith, Abraham is brought forward as one who is justified by faith, yes, at the beginning, but now by works towards the end of his life. And so James uses Abraham to show us those who have an obedient trust, a working faith, are considered friends of God like Abraham. That's beautiful to throw that into this passage. That Abraham, as he demonstrated this obedient faith, was called a friend of God. See, when you listen to God's Word, and when you do what God says, when you listen to God's voice, and then you put it into practice, you let God's voice shape your life, you have the closest possible relationship with God. You want to be close to God? The pathway into the heart of God is obedience. You want to know God? You want to be friends with God? You want to be that intimate and close with God? Then obey. Sin gets in the way of your relationship with God. So clear it away. Repent. Obey. You'll find yourself closer and closer to God. God will see more and more as a friend. So what do we see here again? Initially, Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15. Later, he is justified by his works in Genesis 22. And in, be in between, his faith is growing and maturing. And so it is with us. This same pattern holds true for us. When we first believe, when we first become Christians, we're justified by faith alone. We don't have any works yet. We don't have any works. We haven't done any works yet. 
when we first come to faith, we are justified by faith alone. We're united to Christ by faith and declared righteous in Him. We believe God's promises in Christ and we're counted as righteous. But over time, what has to happen? We have to prove that God's declaration of us as righteous is, is correct. And we do that by growing in obedience. Over time, faith has to grow and to mature and bear fruit. And at the last day, in the final judgment, then we will be justified by works. Works that will, will reveal the quality of our faith. I'm going to talk more about this next week. Talk more about the justification aspect of this. This initial justification, this final justification, this initial justification, we are justified by faith alone, and this final justification according to works. But understand, this is why the Reformer said we're saved by faith alone, not by a faith that is alone. The kind of faith that saves at the last day is a faith that has manifested itself in faithful and obedient action. Saving faith brings with it other graces, other fruits like repentance and obedience and perseverance. And one more note on here before we move on from Abraham. I think the example of Abraham, using Abraham in this context where Abraham gives up his son in obedience to the Word of God, very fitting model, very fitting model for James audience, the people James is writing to. Because remember, who are these people? They're Jewish Christians who have been scattered out of Jerusalem. They're the diaspora. They had to flee Jerusalem because of the persecution after Stephen got martyred. Some of them have been rejected by their unbelieving families when they came to faith. They've lost family for the sake of Jesus. Others perhaps have lost believing family members through the persecution. I mean, imagine Stephen's father reading this after his son has been martyred. Abraham gave up a son. I've given up a son. Others had, had lost believing family members in the persecution. Abraham is a model of patient, obedient faith. Trusting God even in the midst of painful trials, even in the midst of persecution. Doing hard things God requires of us. That is Abraham's faith. But then Abraham turns, then James turns from the example of Abraham to the example of Rahab. He goes from the patriarch to the prostitute. He goes from a man to a woman, from a Jew to a Gentile, from this great saint who is all over the Bible to a woman who just shows up a handful of times. But I think James has a really brilliant strategy in this. James uses a Gentile woman here in a very strategic way, because he wants to show, he wants to prove, God shows no partiality in His judgments. He wants to foreshadow the fact that Gentiles are about to start flowing into the church in mass. And if Rahab could come in through a working obedient faith, you need to welcome those other Gentiles who are going to come in as well. Matthew makes the same point in his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, where he includes Rahab as one of four women in Jesus' genealogy. To show that the, the Messiah has got some Gentile blood flowing in his veins already. The Jew-Gentile divide is being broken down. Now we know Rahab's story from the book of Joshua. Rahab was a Canaanite living in the land God had promised to the Israelites. And because the Canaanites are there, they've got to be evicted from the land, as it were, in the conquest so the Israelites can move in. We find that Rahab has heard of Israel's God. She's heard how he delivered his people from Egypt. She knows that He has promised to them Canaan. And so she puts her trust in this God. She sides with this God, the God of Israel, over the gods of the Canaanites. 
And so when that moment comes, she hides the Israelite spies and then sends them out the other way, showing which side she's in in this great war of history, demonstrating her loyalty to God and to his people. And so when Jericho was destroyed, when the walls fell in, Rahab and her family were saved because she had an obedient faith. She believed and so she acted. She believed and so her life and her loyalties were transformed. And she became an ancestress of the Messiah. She became a member of the people of God. She was justified. She too became an example of someone who in a day of judgment was justified by her works. And so she gives us a picture of our justification by works at the last day. And again, I would say this is a strategic example in another way. Just as Abraham giving up his son is something that the audience James is writing to you might have been familiar with, hiding apostles or other Christian missionaries and protecting them from government agents who are out to get them might have been just the kind of thing that Christians were needing to do in that context James is writing to. You see it in the book of Acts where it happens. So again, it's a great model for those in James' audience. Rahab is an example of someone who is justified by her work. I'm going to again talk more about this this kind of double justification pattern we see in James next week. But for now, let me just wrap this up by pointing you to verse 26. James concludes with an interesting saying. As the body without breath is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What is a body without breath? A body without its spirit? A body without breath is a corpse. It's lifeless. On the other hand, a body with breath is a living body. It's living and active and vibrant. You know, some people think the analogy here is kind of backwards, that James should have done it another way. We might have expected faith to be compared to breath and works to be compared to the body, but James does it the other way around. Why? Because he wants us to see that faith that fails to produce works is a corpse. It's about the faith. It's a dead faith. That's the point. Breath doesn't cause a body to live, but a living body breathes. Works can't bring a dead faith to life, but a living faith will breathe. A living faith will inhale the promises of God's Word and then exhale, breathe out works of obedience. We breathe in God's promises. We breathe out good works. That's what James is saying. You know, there are many in James' day, many in the church in James' day, there are many in the church in our day who fail to produce real fruit. Who have faith, but it's not saving faith. It's unbelief posing as faith. It's a kind of temporary faith or an inadequate faith, a spurious faith. Now, is that you? I'm not saying that you've got to evaluate yourself with some kind of uh, deep introspection or self-examination. That can be helpful. But you know, the reality is anytime we go to examine ourselves, we inevitably almost always end up being too easy on ourselves or too hard on yourself. One of the best ways to know how you're doing spiritually is to ask others around you. You want to know about the quality of your faith, talk to other mature Christians around you who you trust, who who could give you a good evaluation of your life. Be honest with them, be open, let yourself be held accountable But I don't think James here is really calling us to self-examination or introspection. I don't think that's the point. 
James 2 is not a call to self-examination so much as a call to action. It's a call to us to keep putting our faith into practice, to keep working out our faith in obedience in every area of life. It's a call for us to remember the way we live matters. And so strive to enter the narrow gate. Fight the good fight. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make it your aim to be well-pleasing to God. Be zealous for good works. Show your faith by what you do. That's God's call on our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that You would show us grace and mercy. Father, we pray that You would help us to be obedient. That our faith might be demonstrated in the way we live. We know that you have justified us and counted us as righteous in Christ. When we put our faith in him, we want to be declared righteous at the last day. Openly acquitted and vindicated in your court at the last day. So help us to be more and more doers of the law by the power of your spirit. Help us to more and more work out our faith and put it into practice in every area of our lives. Repenting from sin that mars and stains our lives and disrupts our relationship with You. Help us to be an obedient and faithful people. The kind of people that You call us to be in Your Word. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.